Hello and welcome to another episode of After This. My name is Carla. And I'm Daniel. And my name is Shannon. And today is kind of part two of me discussing um, Toby Ord's recent book, The Precipice. Um, so in the first episode last week, we kind of go over um, the main thrust of the book, which is uh, Toby Ord kind of arguing that we're at a real turning point for humanity at the moment where we've got the power to wipe ourselves out or possibly be wiped out by natural means. Um, but we also have the power to kind of stop that from happening. Mm. Um, so in the first episode, I talked through the main risks that he sees as likely to spell the end for humanity's potential. Um, and today I'm going to talk more about um, his ideas for how we can protect ourselves, basically, and stop that from happening. So the good episode. The good episode, yeah. <laughs> not <laughs> I mean, the sad one. It's still one. not that great because he still reckons there's like a one in six chance that we won't survive the next century or, yeah, the next <laughs> century. Carla, don't ruin the happy episode. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Happy episode, happy episode. The actual cynic here, come on. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, it's about some negatives as well. But anyway, so we'll, we'll um, press forward. So the... First kind of stuff that I'd like to talk about and um, get some ideas from you guys as well um, is the way he decides what risks we should focus on. So um, the factors that he cites are, first of all, the likelihood that it's going to happen. So if something's more likely, we should pay more attention to it. Um, how dangerous it is, like how likely it is to actually wipe out literally everyone um, or at least all civilization to the point where advanced civilization won't come back. Um, how likely it is that we'll actually be able to do anything about it. Um, so there's no point in the next decade trying to work out how we stop the sun from exploding. Like, we can't yeah, do yeah. that yet. <laughs> it's going to happen. <laughs> uh, uh, and then also what the time scale is. Um, the time scale one is quite interesting because for some things it's just, you know, the we should focus on the stuff that's going to kill us sooner mm. first, which is another reason not to worry about the sun exploding just yet. Um, sure. But then there are things like climate change where it will destroy us. It'll take a long time to destroy us. But if we want to stop that from happening, the sooner we start stopping it, the better. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's the thing is there's some things that are compounding disasters mm. where like it's, it's more like you have to stop it way earlier than it's a real problem um yeah yeah so climate change is the main example on that one um but then there's also things like political um the political side of things like he talks about um okay a great war a great powers war so between you know i don't know the us and china or something like that mm. um as something that will obviously be really really bad and it'll be a risk factor for a lot of other um, existential threats. So even though mm. war itself is probably unlikely to kill everyone, when, like if all-out nuclear war is something that, I don't know, I think humans will probably avoid. <laughs> but if, you know, half the world is fighting the other half, it's going to be hard to get them to cooperate on climate change policy. Yeah, or, absolutely. Um <laughs> you know, any kind of out of space initiatives that generally historically yeah. at least have 
benefit. Well, I mean, that's the thing. It would be like whether it came down to another uh, Cold War kind of situation where mm-hmm. you had the world split in two. Um, and then finally, this is, I, was, I was talking to Imogen about this last night, that basically it was first world, second world, and third world, and that's where that term came from, mm. is that first world was the capitalist West, second world mm. is communist East, mm. and third world is the developing world. So we never hear second anymore, but we say third a lot. So it's almost <laughs> like we don't have a second. We have a first and a third, and second doesn't exist. Um, but, um, because the good guys yeah. won. <laughs> Freedom isn't free. <laughs> no, that's the thing. Like, if we had another split, but I mean, we don't have. It'd be interesting to see what kind of ideological things would have to happen to create another straight down the middle split. Because obviously, that was the thing: is that you had a significant bunch that wanted a communist state and a significant bunch that wanted a market capitalist state, and there was enough that they opposed each other. Whereas I think usually what you'd end up with is one of them wants something and the other ones want something else. Um, you know, it's, I, I think it'd be rare you'd get that sort of clean, you know, mm-hmm. two sides sort of thing. Um, I think having it divided by, like, country by country is the hard part. Like, if you look at the US now, they definitely have, you know, one group of people who is big right-wing free market capitalism and then another who is more socially liberal and um, a bit more communist but they don't really live half in one half of the country and half in the other half of the country so it's by cities and and rural and it's the same thing with every city everywhere now is you'll end up with like in in every part of the world you have these cities where you have all these younger slightly more educated people who are generally more liberally minded because they've grown up around people from other countries or whatever it is. And it's sort of created this like little bubble of like, I don't know, international experience. Mm. And outside of it is the rural areas where you have far, far fewer people from other countries coming to visit and live and everything else. And so instead of East and West, you kind of have cities and rural. Mm -mm. And that seems Mm. to be the case across most countries now. Like you have these two worlds. And Mm. I think also having the, the, improved communication between the people of one nation and the people of another nation through the internet. Mm. Like it's much harder to get everyone like all Australians to hate all Indians or something like that, because they can talk to each other online. They know that they're not subhuman monsters. Yeah, exactly. And everyone knows at least one Indian person, for instance, that has come over and works in a company similar to theirs or is at their workplace or something and it's sort of just like they're just doing everything that everyone else is doing. Yeah. Um, yeah. An interesting example is like for the for the rural city thing is you have countries like Lithuania. So like Lithuania you have um, the capital Vilnius which has amazingly good internet. Like mm. amazingly good internet infrastructure. <laughs> and like in general the infrastructure build up around Vilnius is fantastic. But outside, it's a pretty small country, but the countryside's really copped it because it hasn't really changed much since the Soviet era. Mm -hmm. So, like, you've got this country where the rural is very, very stuck in a different era and the cities receive, like, all the funding because it's, like, it's a bit of an Eastern European tax haven. So so, so (laughs) the money has skyrocketed in Vilnius specifically. (laughs) And so you end up with this country that's sort of completely two different worlds. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's been a very long tangent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I 
about your original point about splitting the world into yes, that would be. A That's right. It was right. risk factors. Risk factors. Um, the only thing um, I can then... think of that it's a good point because the only thing I could think of is that basically people would be teaming up to sort of oppose the people in charge at the moment. So mm. Russia and China, as much as they dislike each other for a lot of reasons, might cooperate because they want to create an alternate power center, and they kind of have done stuff like that before. Mm. Um, yeah, so there is the merit to that, definitely. One, yeah. one, one quick question. So mm. say there is this big Cold War going on. What angle would you take in convincing them that um, space race is much better? For... Like, so the Cold War. Convincing, yeah, because it would be like, guys, guys, it's Keep cold. Things cool. Yeah, it's, <laughs> cold. It's, it's cold down here, guys, but it's colder up there. <laughs> I mean, look, it's, it's more just the normal, look, it's the normal thing of basically how much of a waste of time it is, right? It's the normal thing that, like, you, you get preoccupied with um, sort of what's right in front of you. And I think the thing is people get, and human beings get sucked into this trap where I think, and I reckon a big part of this is because the sky is not transparent. Like, I think we end up with this thing where, like, we have this blue shield all day and we just see what's right in front of us. <laughs> and the thing is, like, we just walk around all day looking at that building or that tree or that thing. And we get very kind of Earth-centric. And I think it makes us fight to the death a bit more over what's yeah. right in front of us. And the lights. Then nighttime comes and everyone gets really, like, you know, deep and meaningful and, like, likes looking up at the stars and stuff. And then we're like, oh, well, what if then, we do this? Even then, you have to drive an hour out of town to really see the stars. Yeah. Like, that's, I mean, yeah, that, that's that definitely. The, the light pollution, like, oh. <laughs> the, worst, the worst house I ever lived at was like around the corner from a car dealership that always had their lights on, and it's like, oh yeah, I can see, yeah, that. yeah, oh yeah. uh, no, definitely. Mm -hmm. But no, basically, it's the it's the classic thing of you don't want to get sucked into this mindset where it's sort of like mm -hmm. Earth is the end of the universe, and it's just yeah, I don't know, it's a perspective yeah. argument for me. I guess. Yeah, and I guess the hope is that, you know, if one of these big existential risks does become a, a major issue, that it will prompt us to kind of cooperate mm. a lot more yeah. country by country. But then on the other hand, if things get harder, you're more likely to be a bit more, um, like, nationalistic and wanting to take resources from other nations yeah. who don't have enough for yourself. So, I mean, again, something like climate change that just makes life harder in general, yeah. might like it could go. It could go either way. I think um, people more just get scared, right? The thing yeah. is, people get scared. They get conservative and defensive, and then it's basically what do you do with that feeling? Do you either go route A, where you bottle in, pull up the walls, you know, don't help anyone, or do you say I could really use a friend? And they could really use me. Let's work together to solve the problem. Like, yeah. there's two ways the same feeling can take you. And it's just how mm. it's impossible to tell which way it's going to take people. Mm. And mm. something he brings up, um, he kind of puts a bit of maths to it, not very just kind of conceptually, um, about kind of international coordination and again, using climate change as the obvious example. It was like anything that the US does. The US is like one twentieth of the world's population. So anything they do to fight climate change, it helps all of the world. Mm. So they only get one twentieth of the benefit of anything that they do, mm. um, which you know makes it hard to makes it harder to motivate, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. And and you see that like politicians say, well, we're not going to do anything about climate change because no one else is doing anything, and it'll put us yeah. at a disadvantage. Yeah. 
I saw an interesting Greta Thunberg thing, um, as much as her methodology, I think, creates as many people that hate her for irrational reasons. The thing is, um, uh, I think she came up with this good thing, which is basically saying that the Americans won't do it because China won't do it. So it's like, Mm. why should we bother? And Mm. then she's saying that, well, the problem is that countries like mine, like Sweden, look to yours as an example. So the thing is, when you don't do it because China doesn't do it, Sweden doesn't do it. So basically, it's it is a chain that like America, while not the biggest contributor, is like an example for the lower contributors again. So like, it's more like seeing who would America mm. have a knock on effect to as well. So yeah, yeah it's interesting. For now, at least, they're still a major world leader. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why can't yeah. we just do things for the greater good? Yeah, yeah, that'd be best. That'd be best. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing, right? It's like you have all these systemic problems. You have all these things that affect everyone in the entire planet and everything else. It's like, well, it's affecting all of us. So really, you can't really deal mm. with it in a nation-by-nation basis. Mm. Um, well, you can, but then you have to create a completely uniform solution almost yeah. to the point where you may as well just have a unified system. Anyway, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Cause no, because America just doesn't want to pull up its grown-up pants, you know. It no, just, it doesn't like those. They're responsible and cost money. It's got its little tantrum <laughs> diapers on still. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so another framework that um, Ord presents in the, the second half of this book is um, looking at the different stages of a world-ending catastrophe. So... For any kind of big risk, there's the origin of the catastrophe, um, then a scaling phase, so how it expands to a global scale, and then an end game where it, you know, destroys humanity entirely. So we've got those three stages there where we can have an intervention, prevention, response, and resilience. Um, so then he's saying, like, for things that we can't prevent, so like some huge galactic event, um, if we can't prevent it, we can still look at our response and we can still prepare a response and build resilience. Um, so even though the apocalypse begins, it doesn't finalize, like it kind of peters out. And that's like exactly what we're doing with COVID right now. Mm. Um, I don't think COVID, even if we hadn't, if we hadn't done anything right, I don't think it would have destroyed humanity entirely, but it would certainly have made a, we're certainly doing a very strong response. Yeah, um, no, absolutely. And you could argue that it's not enough or that it's too much, but we're having a strong response, I think. Sorry, I'm just cutting for a second while I open this door because Barney wants to be left outside. Wow. And he, um, he, he wants to... Tail. What he mainly does is go outside and sniff the air. And <laughs> I'm like, why did you go outside for that? Anyway, um, yeah, no. Um, so wait, you were saying about COVID-19 that... Um, it wouldn't have destroyed us anyway, but obviously we've, well, we've done intelligent things to sort of curb not. it. But yeah, we've we've had a response. We we mm-hmm. didn't we didn't do the prevention stage, but we we are doing the response stage. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, I, yeah. So yeah, acting together and obviously doing the same sort of thing. It's funny that in this particular instance, the thing we've sort of done together is everyone don't talk, like, like talk to each other. Everyone <laughs> shut your borders and close in and go hyper-national for a little bit. That's sort of been the internationally agreed solution. But 
it actually um, makes logic. Like it actually it makes does. sense in this case. I know it does make sense in this yeah. case. It's exactly what you should do. It's just it's funny that our big cooperation moment was. No, everyone no. What meanwhile? Um, uh, Tony Abbott's having a wet dream at the moment about uh, all the boats have definitely been stopped. Yes. <laughs> yes. Except uh, for the boat of rich people in New South Wales. That one doesn't have yes. to get stopped. <laughs> <That one. laughs> no, if you're rich, you're still allowed to go wherever you want, apparently. Absolutely. <laughs> you, who was telling oh, I don't know who was telling me about it, but someone had the, um, they had a, a bunch of rich people went for a holiday in Aspen or oh something. Like and they were just like, oh no, it's fine. They all went to their villa in Aspen and went skiing or something. I don't know. <laughs> it was something. Uh, no, it's it's incredible the things that rich people do. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I agree. I don't think it would have destroyed everything. I think it just would have been like debilitating for ages. I suppose. Yeah, lots of people like lying in hospital corridors, dying. Um, yeah. And again, like, it seems kind of callous to say, oh, we're going to kill literally everybody. But, like, that's the whole point in the book, is they're looking yes. at things that, that yes. destroy humanity entirely. These so are all not... big, horrible things. It's yeah, just, he's not saying that yeah. it's fun, but it would be. <laughs> I, th I think it's a great thing, because, like, personally, I've learned how much I touch things and subconsciously touch my face and all that oh. sort of stuff. And now <laughs> yeah. I've sort of, like retrained myself on like a hygiene level that I reckon if I keep this up I may never get the flu again <laughs> but we all know well, yeah. we get lazy again oh no nah, but it's like it's 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 as simple as like going to the ATM and like taking a pen with you and like using like a little contactless thing and not touching things that other people touch and it's just like well wow, like you don't have to be like super ultra hygienic all the time but there's certain instances that put you in these like hot spots and you know i've become really i've been really conscious on that and i just started designating my pinky as the touch everything finger <laughs> so then it doesn't really do anything else but it just touches all the buttons for me yeah. <laughs> as, as long as you as long as you clean it after you touch it like... no it's not been cleaned in years yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh and i know I know where you put that thing, Daniel. So one of the the interesting points uh, in this book as well, saying that one of the big difficulties in dealing with these big, big existential threats is, by definition, they're unprecedented. We can't learn by trial and error, um, yeah. which is kind of how humans tend to learn things. And we're not going to have accurate data we're going to have to act on you know experts best guesses mm. because we can't sit and watch these things happen 10 times and learn how to face them that way we've got to get it right the first time mm. Mm. we have a good data set now doctor everyone's dead <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. that is good data <laughs> so that's going to be another difficulty in convincing people to act because you're not going to have all the answers yeah while you're trying to get people to act i thought that yeah, was yeah absolutely point. it's basically getting people to trust experts which a lot of uh governmental figures are not prone to do yeah uh, and yeah. also like you have to trust them and also accept that they're going to be wrong sometimes but that they still know more than your average joe yeah it's yeah. like at the moment with the the u.s trying desperately to uh unlock itself again 
bring itself mm. out of lockdown and Trump keeps talking about doing it like next month. But yeah. the country is still adding like a thousand two hundred corona cases a day. Yeah. <laughs> and that's that's while it's in lockdown. Everyone suddenly comes out again. It's <laughs> Oh man, that is gonna be really bad. That's gonna be really, really bad. And that's the problem, right? Is he's not listening to the people who know what they're talking about. Mm. Um Yeah, it's yeah. very dangerous. Something that um is uh kind of a less serious tangent but when he was talking about the fact that we're going to have to act without having accurate data I immediately thought of the, um, the simulation theory that like it's more likely than not that we're just a simulated earth and people are running <laughs> experiments <laughs> and it's like well that is one way that you could do it I guess <laughs> if you had a decent simulation <laughs> so we've all actually only been alive for like 10 minutes we just Possibly. think we've been alive for a long time who knows? <laughs> but the argument there is like there's probably like one real world and for every real world they're going to have multiple simulations. So mm. therefore statistically it's more likely that we're a simulation than that we're real. Yeah, true. Yeah. <laughs> We've only been alive as long as coronavirus has existed. This is a pandemic test. <laughs> Could be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, false life memories are like the most common symptom of um, coronavirus. <laughs> false memories uh, are a symptom uh, of human. Expect a lot more deja vu, guys. <laughs> <laughs> My whole life is deja vu. <clears throat> uh, yeah so that that's interesting so um in the book after he kind of talks a bit about these kind of ideas of of how to choose which threats to focus on and um kind of likely barriers um he sets out what he calls his grand strategy for humanity oh uh, that sounds awesome it is mm. a very interesting um and it certainly is grand to the point where like the first point makes is kind of solid and makes sense and then the second point and the third point are a bit more like well I don't know what we're going to do exactly so he says so his step one is reaching existential security so first thing we need to do is make sure we're going to survive the next you know 100 to a thousand years that's job number one (laughs) (laughs) Um, and there's a really great um quote uh so he thinks that it's really kind of attitudes and culture that needs to change the most to to help make this happen um and i'll I'll quote from the book he says the greater risk and tighter deadline stems from the anthropogenic threats uh but being of humanity's own making they are also within our control were we sufficiently patient prudent and coordinated we could simply stop imposing such risks upon ourselves Mm -hmm. um which i'm like yeah you really that's true. Like it's very yeah. kind of oversimplified, but yeah, if everyone just decided to stop and be more cautious, yeah, <laughs> there obviously be downsides. Yeah, yeah. No, it's basically it's it's kind of a lack of planning that mm. we have an issue with. Like we, I mean, overwhelmingly because the most powerful countries and the richest countries are you know limited term election cycle countries hmm. they have all the money and all the and all the sway but they they think about four years at a time yeah um they might have institutions that think further because hmm. like they didn't like they, for instance nasa plans its moon and mars missions and stuff like 10 years and 20 years in advance hmm. but the thing is 
the actual election cycle where all the funding and focus and national policy and everything happens is like three to four years because that's how long that's how long the upper and the lower house sits for that long the upper house sits for that long they're on different periods but the mm-hmm. um elected like all elected officials sit for about that amount of time um and so i think we just don't like thinking far ahead we plan for like three mm-hmm. years like what we're going to do economically in the next few years to overcome the next couple of challenges yeah but it's not really long-term thinking and it um, makes sense because like society is so complicated it's yeah. imp- almost impossible to successfully predict things and the further in the future you try to plan the more likely that you're going to be wrong mm. um and the less control you have so like it make it's the election cycle is absolutely part of it as the, well but the it, added thing is both the reasons na- the added thing is just nation states though i mean it's mm. the fact that if you're an institution in any country and you're trying to make a long-term plan you can plan because you can talk to the rest of your mm. institutions and make a plan, but you have no idea what that country's going to do or that country or that country or the other 194 other little countries are going to do with mm. their resources and their plans. So the thing is you can't really, you know, have a great accurate time, you know, yeah. like, like figuring out what you're going to do. So without that sort of uh, reliability and consistency, you can't really make long-term plans that affect... Mm that require anything outside of yourself, which most things do nowadays. Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I, I again, this was supposed to be the happy episode, and I feel really negative saying, <laughs> oh, it's all too complicated, you can't plan anything. Like, obviously you can, and you can, yeah. you can make, you know, you could make efforts, and humans are pretty good at attempting the impossible in that way, mm. I think. Yeah. Um, there was an interesting, um, in 97, um, the UN, UNESCO um, did a, a declaration on the responsibilities of the present generations towards future generations, um, which was, was kind of interesting. I, I did read it. It wasn't worth quoting the full thing because it was quite long and a bit tedious. Mm. Um, but it's basically saying that uh, the, the signing countries agree that we should try to help the future generations, basically. Um, mm. Humanity's continued existence may be at stake and that acting on this falls within the mission of the UN. Mm. Um, so, yeah, people are kind of trying to work together and, and make these big plans and it's probably significantly better than nothing. Like, I'm sure they're doing, you know... It's the UN, though, I mean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was it like, and pause. <laughs> no, no, no. It'll, it'll work amazingly well if all of the members of the UN Security Council think it's a good idea. They never, ever agree on anything, but... <laughs> but surely the method by which to protect the great future of humanity is something that everyone will agree on. <laughs> You'd think so. It's a very simple problem. <laughs> <laughs> Except that it's going to require things like cutting carbon emissions, and then China's going to be like, ah, oh, we like our manufacturing thing, so no. <laughs> and then it's going to be like, okay, at least we can not invade, you know, you know, throw military assets at Syria, and then Russia and America that both like the opposite sides veto each other and say no (laughs) (laughs) and Um, then every major strategic decision in the world gets voted down because it gets vetoed by someone (laughs) Um, 
<laughs> so I love the... this. I love the facade that people think the UN is this massive, like, amazingly powerful entity, and it's taking over the world when it's like the most it's useless so... thing in the world. It's, so... <laughs> it's, it's, it's like inspiring. A... <laughs> it's a pretty coffee shop where all the cool people come and hang out. <laughs> and you can have your fancy conversation there if you want to, or you can have it down the street. It really doesn't matter. <laughs> <clears throat> I still think it's better than nothing. Anyway. Absolutely. Right, I, agree. After... <laughs> I agree. So after the first stage of reaching existential security, uh, his second step, um, you know the, the saying that's like, when all you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail? So the philosopher who wrote this book thinks that the second step is that we should have more philosophy. <laughs> I thought you were going to say more nails. <laughs> um, no, so, what, what, he wants more philosophy um, to basically make it so that that's how we deal with more of our issues, I'm guessing. Yeah, so his, his point is that philosophy up until now has been focused on negatives, so how to define what is good and bad and how to, you know, solve the problems of being a human being. Um, and he argues for and predicts that as we move forwards as a species, we'll start thinking a bit more deeply about what is good um, mm. in the medium and the long term. Uh, yeah. And it's vital that we spend a lot of time thinking about that and that we involve somehow all of humanity um, and lots of different cultures and viewpoints in thinking about that because we don't want to – well, once we kind of make a plan, it's quite easy to get to the point where we can't undo it. Um, mm. So the example that he gives is um, the possibility that humanity would be best served by interfering with our own biology to create humans that are more healthy or more diverse and able to do more things, kind of the whole transhumanism movement. Mm. Um, but And that certainly does sound appealing and like possibly a really good thing, but it could also be a really bad thing. You know, it could fragment humanity. Yeah. We could end up having to... The Gattaca eugenics thing. The Gattaca eugenics thing becomes yeah. more of a risk too. So, um, yeah, his, his argument is that we want to really kind of stop and really slowly and thoroughly think about what we want for humanity in the future mm. before we actually start doing anything. Which yeah, is I, I, I completely agree. I think, I think we don't really spend virtually any time on mm. whys. Like, I, I yeah. thinking about why we're doing things. I think what we do overwhelmingly is we're used to sort of just uh trying to get more stuff because like we're like we lack things so we focus on like the things we need to add um you know whether it's a country that's just not as rich as the other country next to it so it's trying to add things to make their their quality of life the same as theirs it's a very um you know and for good reason in a lot of ways it's a very materialistic focus but the thing is what it sort of has done is kind of completely lost the other focuses yeah. um like to the point where it's the only thing that's really ever spoken about or considered or thought about like mm -hmm. the the whys and the ethics of things yeah. have increasingly kind of drifted out of the picture like the way america sort of deals with its economy at the moment where it's like uh you know america is meant to be founded on this entire elaborate philosophy which is why it broke away from the monarchies of europe and things like that 
but then overwhelmingly over time with Trump and all the other fun time conservatives, um, we've kind of moved more towards this sort of mentality now because their economy is slipping, that the economy is all that matters, everything else can get fucked. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter how it happens. It doesn't matter who we vote in. It doesn't matter anything. It just matters that we repair the economy mm. and we keep our material wealth flowing. And it's sort of like, I think it's diverted attention mm. um, in a lot of ways globally towards this very, yeah. Yeah. But it's hard because that stuff is important. Like if you're, three days, if you're three days away from homelessness, like why would you care what your, you know, what you grandchildren's grandchildren's grandchildren think about what it means to be human. It's like... Oh, no, no, uh, absolutely. No, no, I yeah. totally agree. But, yeah, yeah. But there's, yeah. I think... It's more just that it's almost gone. You know what I mean? Like, it, yeah. it's like, it's just not even in the thinking. Because to the point that, that basically, I think there's solutions to their problems that they're not even considering because mm. they're so sort of forest for the trees. Like, it's like... Oh, yeah. That they're so focused on the immediate problem that there are bigger things that might take more time that could solve these problems for them mm. more sustainably, but they refuse to look at them because they're just so focused on it's, that thing right there kind of like, thing. It seems like it's like a natural repercussion of like materialism and mm. like the constant growth of the of the system mm. that we have now for materialism that because we're constantly chasing the next thing. Mm. You don't have that time to even stop doing that because you realise you're sort of stuck in the structure of Mm. needing to earn for more for the next thing and then constantly that. It wasn't until I sort of got out of my materialistic traps that I even got into um, philosophy or even had the time for philosophy in the first place. And it's, it's it's not like we have a problem with you know, things like owning things, buying things, having things, you know, enjoying life and all the things that are involved with that. It's more just when you become hyper fixated and don't really see other solutions to the same problem. Like it's not that you can't necessarily buy a solution to every problem. Yeah. I I think worldwide. And if, if you kind of expand your view to worldwide and in, I think plenty of people are thinking about these kinds of things, but it's Mm -hmm. not, it's not the people who have political power and the people who have political power aren't thinking about them and talking to the people who are thinking about them. Mm. Like, I think if you look at the a- academia, I think there's plenty of people thinking about these kinds of things. Mm. Um, but, the, yeah, there's not much funding dedicated to it. And that's the effect, I think, that, that you have political leaders basically that mm. just focus on the next problem, yeah. the next short-term problem. But, like... Fair enough, but what that does is it creates the same thing we're talking about mm. with like the election cycle problem where any issue that's going to take 20 years and then you could end up with a permanent solution mm. um, pretty much just not even on the table. Mm. It's it's more what are the things that we can do to fix the problem right now because people want results right now. And that's the thing. Yeah. It's also the electorate's fault because they're basically just sitting there going, no, give me a fix now. I want something <laughs> now. So anything yeah. that takes 10 years is not going to happen. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, and he made, um, what was I about to say, he made an interesting point as well about research. That was right. It was I think it was in the section where he was talking about biotechnology um, and the risks of creating human-made pandemics and that kind of thing, um, and I think genetic uh, 
fiddling, <laughs> genetic fiddling. Genetic fiddling. If the, the funding bodies could, you know, dedicate as much money to philosophers thinking about those problems as they do to researchers working on those problems. Mm. Um, again, you know, politically and economically, I don't think that's going to happen. I think, I think the thing is everyone thinks could. they are their own philosopher and yeah. they just, they know they can't do genetic research because they don't have those skills, but everyone assumes that whatever they instinctively think is the right thing anyway. <laughs> so it doesn't need, I don't need ethics. I don't need to think about that. I already know what I know. <laughs> I think that's the instinctive kind of human response. Yeah. So that, yeah, it was quite interesting. Um, the third step that he lays out in this grand strategy for humanity is achieving our potential. Um, so he, in the last couple of chapters, talks about some kind of far future stuff. So I don't really want to spend too much time on it, but I have written down some facts and figures that I would like to to kind of go through um, in terms of thinking about humanity's potential. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, basically... The average lifetime of a species um, on Earth is between 1 and 10 million years. Um, So that's kind of naturally. The oldest that we know of is about 500 million years old. So far, that's the oldest species that is still around, um, as far as we can tell. Would that be like an algae or something? Why on Earth didn't I write that down? (laughs) I think it might be the... Is it uh, the Nautilus? The under. Anyway, it's, my, it's my essence. <laughs> There's been shattered for Nautilus, 500 yeah, that's the million one. years. So it's kind of it's like an underwater kind of. I thought it was the underwater shell thing. Um, you can Google it. Where, where was like it? some sort of like trilobite or something. It's called a Nautilus. Um, oh, it Nautilus. looks it looks kind of like a. Hermit crab. Oh, okay. I think it's kind of so, yeah, big. It's like and a sea thing. It's a sea. It's a sea thing. They've got cute shells. Uh, yeah. Would would recommend googling. Um, so yeah. So that's you know the oldest species so far that um, and that's still around. Uh, yeah. So you know you've got tens of millions of years to play with naturally. Yeah. Um, the estimates that uh, the so as the sun gets brighter um, as it goes through its star life. Um, It will, for some reason that I didn't understand, but apparently is understood, um, it's likely to reduce the volcanic activity uh, on Earth. Um, And volcanic activity is really important for a lot of our life cycles um, in terms of lifting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Um, Currently, we do that job, so... (laughs) We do yeah. that job really well. But, you know, in general, you do need some volcanic activity. Yeah. Um, and it, that will make photosynthesis very difficult in around 800 million years. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that we are likely to be able to kind of interrupt and have an effect on. But the Earth without us, that's that's what would happen. Plant mm-hmm. life would become really difficult in about 800 million years. Mm-hmm. Um, in 7.6 billion years, the sun has expanded enough to take over the Earth, mm-hmm. uh, and then the sun itself dies in 8 billion years. So yep. we've got 8 billion years to get out of this solar system. <laughs> <laughs> if we have, you to do, have you seen the movie The Wandering Earth, the Chinese sci-fi movie? No, that sounds interesting, though. The Wandering I'm... Earth is it's basically 
and you can tell it's sort of from the um the Chinese imagination because like China is sort of playing the America role, but, <laughs> but it's the whole world really cooperating. It's just that China is one of the big players yeah. in fixing the problem. But basically they realize that there's some issue in the solar system um, where the sun's going to die. That's what it was. The sun is going to die and it's just going to go out. And so we're not going to have sun anymore. So what they do is they rig up the entire planet with um, propulsion basically so then they can fly to a different star. So they basically so they can fly Earth to another sol- to another solar system. Um, and so the whole thing is so that's why the picture of it is just this Earth covered in gigantic engines. <laughs> so basically, in the thing that they almost everyone the whole planet's like ice and snow, and they're basically not much light, and they're trying to build these giant engines to get away to get to the next, to next place. They all have to bunker down in underground cities. Right. It's, it's, it's all, I think it's on Netflix. It's called, oh, okay. it's, it's based on a famous novel called The Wandering Earth. So, yeah, I thought it was um, cool. But no, it's actually, it was pretty good. Lots of CG, but it's very good. Um, I wish they'd done it with real props. Um, escaped Earth. Because uh, with... <laughs> 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 that sounds easy. Um, yeah, no, I just thought I'd add that because I thought you'd be interested to see it because it was a really, yeah. really interesting film. Okay, I'll put it on my list. Um, there is a great quote um, just mm. from from the author um, talking about our potential to um, get past that 800 million year uh, issue where the sun is likely to stop the volcanoes from being involved in the carbon cycle and that we might be able to fix that. And he says, perhaps with ingenuity and commitment, we could extend the time allotted to complex life on Earth by billions of years and in doing so, more than redeem ourselves from the foolishness of our civilization's youth. Mm. Yeah, I like yeah. this. Yeah, I, I like it when they word them together. Like, yeah. the thing is, the two things go together. Like, it, we do, we consider these things and care about these things for philosophical reasons, you know. Mm. Um, we don't we don't care about them purely for technical reasons. We're interested because like the idea of preserving humanity for another eight million years or billions of years or whatever is um, cool. Like, it's, <laughs> it is cool. <laughs> for lack of another word, I suppose it's just, it's, it's it's worthwhile. Like. For moral reasons. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's fun to think about. It's one of those things that just kind of breaks your brain. Mm. Like the human brain, it's not evolved to think about things that big and that long. No, uh, we're, we're conditioned to be in our bubble and look at the thing next to us and frown. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, so the final, really, kind of out there. Um, what's the word like? contemplative it's not the word i'm looking for something or other um thing that he talks about is the potential scale of humanity so he was saying that basically we're not by any kind of fundamental laws of physics trapped um on the earth uh, as a species as far as we know like our understanding of physics could could evolve um and this guy isn't a physicist so he might have some kind of errors in here um although he did talk to real physicists he wasn't just pulling this out of his ass mm. um so he says basically two hours of sunlight has enough power in it to power current our current society for a year um so obviously most of the sun's energy is wasted um and not just in that well it doesn't hit our solar cells so therefore it's totally a waste but like <laughs> 
Um, all the bodies of our solar system together receive less than a hundred millionth of the sun's light, um, is the quote. So basically there's a lot of energy there that we can take um, without yeah. screwing up the whole solar system in the yep. same way that, you know, burning coal um, screws up the Earth. <laughs> um, yep. uh, and he says that the asteroid belt has enough raw material to make maybe not, actually, I don't know about a full Dyson sphere, uh, which is where you have, um, mm. you know, a, a structure that covers the entire sun and gets all of the energy from the sun, but certainly a ring um, or some kind of smaller um, giant mm. installation to catch solar energy. Some kind of net structure, yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, Speaking of which, have you ever w seen the YouTube channel Kurtzgesagt? Oh, I fucking love Kurtzgesagt. Because that's the one that had to do the, the Dyson Sphere. They talk yeah. about having a net of, like, smaller satellite nets. So then, like, it's not completely covering the sun, but, yeah. like, it surrounds it pretty thoroughly. Yeah, so you and get tons of the energy. And you, mm -hmm. can, you can kind of build it up bit by bit, too. It's not like you have to go from nothing to a sphere. You could mm. a couple of satellites up and then mm. a couple more and then more and more and more. Well, uh, the, the first thing would just be building a big array in our own orbit. Basically just like, you know, a big array with nothing in the way. Like, I, I think we're at the point we can actually kind of plan that to a certain extent. Mm. Like, it's within grasp of the next couple of centuries. I think I could be wrong. Mm. Um, anyway, um, so he talks a bit about the concept of like a, a starcraft, so to carry humans out of our solar system and to, to the nearest star, to, to a different star. Um, and he was saying that basically the, the difficult parts, you need to accelerate to great speed, you need to survive the long journey, you need to decelerate when you get there, and mm. then to build, build a new base. Um, yeah. So there's a lot of huge challenges in that, um, but you know, probably not impossible. Yeah. <laughs> phrase used, probably not impossible. Well, that's why they um, always talk about, like, if you're going to do something like that, you have a ship that is also a base so that you can land the whole ship and then it just yeah. turns into a big, like, home settlement. But you'd it want some monster craft. Yeah. yeah. Um, and apparently if we could hop six light years at a time, you can kind of get from one star to the other and get to most of the entire galaxy by doing that. Hmm. Um, so, you know, yeah. The one th <laughs> I remember the one theory I heard is that theoretically we could cover the whole galaxy. What we probably will never be able to do is go to other galaxies is because yeah. of the way that they're... I don't know if you're about to talk about that or not. Though. Oh, there's some great mind-breaking stuff. So it's because the universe is expanding, yeah. um, galaxies our galaxy is getting further and further away from other galaxies constantly. Mm. That seems to be just something that the universe is doing. Um, yeah. So um, no matter how fast we're going, there are some galaxies that we'll never be able to get to because they're moving away from us faster than we could possibly catch them by the laws of physics. And mm. apparently there's about 16 billion light years is our um, zone of where we can possibly get to. Mm. Um, but the part that really made my brain go, whoa, was that some of them we could get to, but it would be physically impossible to ever get a signal back. Yeah. By the time they get there, 
they're far enough away, moving fast enough that the speed of light they couldn't get a signal back. Like, yeah, exactly. Does that make your brain just like? Oh yeah, no. That's what they're saying. Eventually, because of the expanding universe model, they'll eventually become a point where the you won't be able to see, um, like other galaxies anymore at all in space because they'll all be so they're moving so fast away from us mm. that they're moving faster than the speed of light is bringing their light back to us so basically they'll all just be blacked out everything will be blacked out um so yeah no it's mental absolutely mm. mental unless we invent some kind of event horizon drive where we can like disappear in one place and appear in another just yeah. magically almost we work out some kind of we'll just bring all of hell with us just like in that movie <laughs> <laughs> like, you just have to get out every time you get to the destination like scrub off the outside <laughs> yeah, like, don't worry guys we just brought Clean hell with us again hell beast. <laughs> <laughs> Like he's switching us, he's like flicking a switch and his field turns on and burns all the demons off. Yeah, sorry, yep, yep, yep. Just have to get rid of hell again. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, and that, that kind of closes out the book. So that's that was uh, my summer book report on the precipice. <laughs> <laughs> well, well done, yeah. Carl. Everyone clap for Carl. Uh, job. <laughs> uh, I would highly recommend it. He's a good writer. It's it's yeah. very engaging and it's clearly been really well researched. Um, Absolutely. So yeah, check it out. Toby yeah. Ord. Yeah, I think I think um, like the existential things that threaten us. Like, there's so much of it that um, Stephen Hawking talked about to do with like it's just so many things that could potentially knock us out <laughs> yeah. it's basically just if we were just on more than one planet the the, the likelihood that any of those things is going to wipe us out completely is just like you know massively massively reduced so we don't have to be paranoid about every little thing to the same degree because you know we have the potential to keep going um because you have more than one planet but mm. Yeah, I was watching. I was watching the Kurzgesagt video on like what you'd have to do to make a Mars colony at the moment. Yeah, and it was just like this sounds really hard. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like they were saying, like we have a love of hard, so um, we're gonna do it anyway. Um, but yeah, no, it'd be really cool to see if we can, you know, expand and solve some of these problems. Mm. <laughs> we'll never know. No, no. Well, we may know a little bit of it, but we won't know like if we're going to stop the sun exploding. If because yeah. the ultimate thing will be at the end of the universe when all the stars go out, mm. um, will we be able to flick the light switch back on somehow? Because mm -hmm. um, obviously this is I don't know whatever the number was. It was something like thirty billion trillion something. I don't know years. Like, <laughs> I, yeah, I don't have that figure, but yeah. <laughs> I heard it was like the red dwarfs would still be alive or something, and the and the black holes um, after a certain okay. period. But yeah, we'll anyway. be able to get something for black holes. Within, we do have. I think it's called Hawking radiation, isn't it? Well, they do spit out some energy. I think they talked about like the last human, the last settlements would theoretically just be orbiting around the black holes, absorbing mm. energy from them. But man, that would be nuts! Like the all you have is a black hole and endless black, <laughs> and you're just yeah. sitting in this like thing that's <laughs> black. Like, oh man, this sucks. Yeah. <laughs> Worst simulation ever. 
Business simulation. Elon, unplug me now. That was an awesome um, book report. Thank you, Carla. Thank you. Can uh, an A plus? No. Oh. What I love to do is saying penmanship counts. You get about an A minus. It just bugs the shit out of a people. A minus. Because <laughs> they have to know That's why. the worst minus. score imaginable. <laughs> An A minus <laughs> minus. <laughs> but the minus drives people nuts, and I love it. <laughs> I say it at work sometimes. You go, oh, I'll give about an A minus. They're like, oh, <laughs> minus four. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> um, no, that was awesome. Yeah. All right. End of pod. All right. I've been, I've, I've been Carla. And I've been Daniel. And I'm still Shannon. Fantastic. We'll see you next time. See you next week. <laughs>